This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time. Hello, welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We're broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. And you can find us on 9625 kilohertz in the 31 meter band if you're in Southern Africa. You can also find us on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spomele Lezondena Mutjola Netulo, Amanda Machaka and Mosibudi Makura. Your top stories. Tributes continue to pour in following the passing of South Africa's anti-apartheid giant. March is TB Awareness Month dedicated to educating everyone around the world about the scourge of TB. In economics, Kenya's inflation rate to remain above the government's target range in the next two months. And in sports, Bafana Bafana names three debutants against Angola tonight. Here's Jola Netula. Thank you, Spumelele. Good afternoon. South Africa's ruling ANC veteran Isop Pahad has called for the rural northwest province town of Schwarzreinecke, where Ahmed Kathrada was born, to be renamed after the Ravonia trialist who died this morning. Pahad, a former minister in the presidency, was also born in Schwarzreinecke in 1939, 10 years after Kathrada. Local people and communities are mourning Kathrada as a son of the town, among them local ANC youth leader Kenny Murolo. Kathy's reminder to this family is just one simple thing. Always, always be honest in your dealings. Try your best not to harm people. Don't hurt people. Kathy is like that. He, his constant reminder to us is that be morally correct. Always try and be morally correct. South Africa's Finance Minister Pravan Gordon is attending the case at the High Court in Pretoria between him and Gupta-owned businesses. Gordon is asking the court to declare that he has no powers to intervene in the closure of the Gupta accounts by the country's major banks. Gordon went to the court from the ANC headquarters at Lutuli House in Johannesburg after arriving home today from an aborted investment tour of the U.S. and U.K. He was recalled from the tour by President Jacob Zuma, ANC Secretary-General Gwedeman, Dashe has declined to comment on a report by ANN 7 Television that the ruling party's top six have approved Gordon's removal as finance minister. Two bodies have been found in Central Democratic Republic of Congo, and, this, and there is high probability they are the remains of United, United Nations investigators who went missing earlier this month. Michael Sharp, a U.S. citizen, and Zaida Katalan of Swedish nationality disappeared in Congo's Kasai region. Michael Sharp's father, John Sharp, wrote on social media that DNA tests and dental records will be used to confirm the identities of the bodies. Former rebels in Mali have reversed a decision to boycott a national reconciliation conference after receiving assurances from the government. The talks were agreed in a 2015 peace deal signed by Touareg-led rebels, the government and pro-Bamako militias. They were aimed at ending successive 
separatists uprising in Mali's north, mostly re- most recently in 2012, and to isolate jihadist groups. On Monday, the coordination of movements of Azawad, the former rebel alliance, and Mali's opposition groupings announced they would not attend, saying the planned seven-day meeting was not long enough and its aims were too limited. And finally, an armed man has been arrested trying to enter the Tunisian parliament in Tunis. A parliamentary official says the man was stopped at a scanner at the entrance of to the parliament building. It was not immediately clear why the man was attempting to get entry into the building. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you very much, Olane. A number of high-level politicians have been flocking to the house of Ahmed Kathrada's widow, Barbara Hogan, to convey their condolences. This is after the passing of Kathrada at Donald Gordon Hospital in Johannesburg earlier this morning. He died at the age of 87. Kathrada was admitted to hospital earlier this month where he underwent surgery after doctors discovered a blood clot in his brain. Amos Pacho reports. In paying tribute to Kathrada, Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa has described him as a devoted stalwart of the liberation struggle who served the country with no expectation for material gain. Ramaphosa says the country has been robbed of a great leader. He is one of those who, out of sheer total commitment, selfless commitment, gave his life to the freedom of our people. A man of great integrity, a humble person, a person who was honest to his core, who wanted our freedom to be based on great values, values of great integrity, great honesty, and a person who lived his life by the words that he always articulated. And he always put our people first. So today we are in great sadness, but we also celebrate a great life. Ramaphosa has called on South African leaders, particularly young people, to emulate Kathrada. We will try to emulate his commitment, his example, and I particularly remember him for the great fondness that he had for young people. And it is the young people of our country who must remember Uncle Kathy and try to walk in his footsteps. Former Finance Minister Trevor Manuel says Kathrada left this world with the same resilience and dignity that he lived. Manuel's first contact with Kathrada dates back to 1985 at Paul Prison, where the younger man had been placed under solitary confinement. He says it is at this point where he experienced Kathrada's humility. For me, the fondest, fondest memory is that, that first encounter. You know, it was my first detention in solitary confinement. I didn't know what was on the other side of it. And then comes somebody who brings a message of hope to me. He himself is serving a sentence of life imprisonment, and he can transmit hope. And once that encounter happened, nothing could ever take it away, and nothing could surpass it, because uh, whatever has happened in the rest of my life since then, I can always go back to that very, very dear memory of an engagement between us. Former minister in the presidency, Esop Bahad, also paid Barbara Hogan's home a visit to convey his message of condolences. He says Kathrada had a broad world view in his fight for justice. For me, we should mourn 
but we should celebrate the life of a great patriot, a great internationalist. Never forget that Ahmad Katrada was a great internationalist. And in his last years, he was leading the campaign in this country for the release of Bhagwati from the Israeli prison. And I think for me, one of the things we need to do is to keep on intensifying the campaign for the release of Bhagwati and all other political prisoners from the dungeons in Israel. Katrada will be buried at West Park Cemetery tomorrow in accordance with the Muslim religious rights. I'm Amos Power in Johannesburg. A few members of parliament who served with Ahmed Kathrada in the first democratic parliament in 1994 have remembered him above all for his calm demeanor. Despite being a struggle giant in his own right and a close confidant and parliamentary councillor to former President Nelson Mandela, Kathrada shunned the limelight. Ahmed Kathrada left an indelible impression on a young Bantuolo Misa the first time they met in Mtata shortly after his release from Robben Island in the late 80s. So memorable was that moment and subsequent meetings between the two men that Tolomisa now recalls each meeting as if it were yesterday. The first time I met uh, uh, Honorable Kaya Katrada was in 1989 when we welcomed him together with other uh, colleagues of his who were just released in by, by FWT Clark. When we welcomed them in Umtata in 1989. We further met again during the time of uh, Cordesa and uh, in 1994 uh, he was amongst the the members of parliament uh, in Cape Town and uh, we worked closely with them in the caucus, with him in the caucus. Kathrada's first impression was as powerful on ACDP leader Kenneth Mishwe in parliament in 1994. We're engaging with Babu Kathrada as a, a father in the nation. Even though he was not the head of state, he had that image that commanded respect of everybody who interacted with him. Both Olomisa and Meshwe recall quite fondly Kathrada's easygoing and affable nature, qualities they believe made him the perfect candidate to serve former President Nelson Mandela as his parliamentary counsel. He was a disciplined uh, individual, an, an organized person, a good listener, and a soft-spoken individual who would uh, put his position uh, without fighting, without being uh, emotional. Uh, that's why I guess that uh, the, he was, uh, he got the ear of the of Matiba all the time. As I said, he was his counselor. He was not a difficult man. He was an easy man, simple man, approachable man. And so I think Mr. Mandela made the right decision in choosing him to be his counsellor because he stood between the president's office and the members of parliament and we found him to be very pleasant to deal with. Michel says once in the position, Kathrada excelled, leaving out Mandela's values of a presidency and parliament accessible to all South Africans. Many times when we wanted to talk to the president, he would never give excuses. He was kind, he was polite, and he always makes space for him for us to approach him as members of parliament. Holomisa and former FF Plus leader Peter Mulder also say they admired Kathrada's quiet nature. 
Most of the time when I was uh, in Mandela's cabinet, I would meet him in Katota, in Matiba's office. And a uh, quiet gentleman, but uh, you could see that uh, he was uh, a thinker. I never saw him angry. I never saw him shouting. I saw him debating, yes, sure. Feeling strong about his case, as I'm strong about my case, but you could respect each other. And I think that is what I really need. If you talk about democracy, not fighting problems out, but talking it out, he was a symbol of that. Both Michoud and Holomisa say there's no doubt that Kathrada's name belongs among the giants of South Africa's liberation struggle. But they also stress that his subsequent work in a democratic South Africa puts his name and legacy equal to that of his old friend and comrade Nelson Mandela. When Parliament remembers the successes of the first Parliament, he's one man that must come next to Tata Madiba. I'm not sure whether in Parliament Tata Madiba could have done what he did and whether he could have had such a wonderful, almost perfect relationship with all the members of Parliament if Tata Kathrada was not next to him. So I believe, as we honor Tata Madiba, we have to do the same thing to Tata Kathrada. Mr. Kathrada is one of those few individuals, I would say, his aim has never been to line his pocket or fight for his uh, family to get a cake first before uh, anybody else. He's one of those people, I would say, he put the interest of South Africans and the country first. Uh, it's a pity that uh, the so-called struggle stalwarts who are running the country today uh, have not emulated the good example of the likes of Katradas. And that is as tributes about Ahmed Athrada. Kathrada continue to pour in your time is 1714 Central African time. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultranjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango, Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana, reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Something is changing at Channel Africa. Could it be news? Could it be your favorite presenter? Could it be? That's for you, our listener, to find out. From the 1st of April 2017, something will be changing or happening on your radio station. Be the first one to find out by staying tuned in. Don't miss it. Remember to check our website and all social media platforms such as Twitter, 
at Channel Africa One, our Facebook page and Instagram and YouTube. Your time is 17.16 Central African time. You're listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One. If you want to send us emails, it's info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. Now, some 40 countries, including permanent five members of the United States, France, and the United Kingdom, will boycott the negotiations at the United Nations to create a legally binding treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons, leading towards their total elimination. South Africa immediately labeled the move morally inexplicable after a majority of UN member states in the General Assembly voted last December to establish the negotiations and to encourage all countries to participate. The protesting countries believe negotiations starting today will not lead to effective progress on global nuclear disarmament. Sean Bryce Peace reports. Countries gathered in the UN General Assembly to begin a multilateral process that aims to create a world free of nuclear weapons. But not everyone is on board. United States Ambassador Nikki Haley led a group of ambassadors outside the General Assembly to announce they were not participating. You are going to see almost 40 countries that are not in the General Assembly today. And that's 40 countries that are saying, in this day and time, we would love to have a ban on nuclear treaty, on nuclear weapons. But in this day and time, we can't honestly say that we can protect our people by allowing the bad actors to have them and those of us that are good trying to keep peace and safety not to have them. These countries said they remained committed to the non-proliferation treaty which prevents the spread of weapons of mass destruction but does not directly address their elimination. UK Ambassador Matthew Rycroft. The UK is not attending the negotiations on a treaty to prohibit nuclear weapons because we do not believe that those negotiations will lead to effective progress on global nuclear disarmament. They cannot and will not work. The British government firmly believes that the best way to achieve the goal of global nuclear disarmament is through gradual multilateral disarmament negotiated using a step-by-step approach and within existing international frameworks. South Africa rejected their views through Ambassador Nozipo Mkakato de Seco. She leads South Africa's diplomatic efforts in Geneva and other international organizations. It is inexplicable morally why the P5 would not want to join in with the international community to minimize the risk but also to help us move and achieve what the, free, the, the UN Charter says uh, uh, we should all aim for, a world that is free of uh, weapons of, of, of mass destruction. Instead of joining with the community, what, what they've done here is to demonstrate to the world that uh, they have no sense of responsibility, they have no sense of, en- of commitment to enduring peace at a very critical time. Ambassador Mkakato de Seco urged those boycotting countries, particularly the United States, to join the process. How does she argue against the DPRK when she walks away from the conference? How can the U.S. argue against the DPRK when they refuse to engage with nations on what we should do, for example, about the possible detonation of a nuclear device accidentally or deliberately? We, we live in a world where that is possible. They sucked the P5. They didn't want to participate in the process, and the process moved. How, how can they explain to the DPRK 
what moral moral standing what moral leg can they stand on the NGO international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons slammed the boycott as a stunt that was unhelpful to the process already underway I'm Sherman Bricepies in New York Meat from sheep farm in Ellensfontein in South Africa and the Northern Cape, Karoo, is the first to be officially certified and marketed according to the international standards as being organically produced. Dr. Mariana Smith of Ecoset, Southern Africa, explains this. Last year in April, Sonia and Vili Esterhuizen contacted me, they from the farm Elansfontein in the Bridgetown district, and they contacted Ecoset regarding organic certification of the sheep. Now, according to me, and I grew up on a sheep farm myself, it is quite easy for South African sheep farmers to be certified organic. We are almost organic by default because the biggest things in the organic industry for livestock is the area that the animals have to roam around in and we don't stable our animals or put them in crawls like where they have to do in Europe where the animals overwinter in stables. So our animals are free-range animals and we also hardly ever plant pastures, especially in the Karoo where this farm is situated. So immediately they adhere to the food requirement and then the other requirement is the medicines. Often sheep farmers give medication as a precautionary measure. In organics that is not allowed. You cannot just medicate your animals as a precaution. You must medicate them when there are problems and it must be on authority of a veterinary. This road to organic certification, what is it that is required for a sheep farm to be able to be internationally certified as an organic uh, farm? As an organic producer of livestock. They must have the will to do it, um, must want to be organic, and then there must be a reason for them to be organic. Either they have a market for their organic meat or they want to source a market for their organic meat. They must be prepared to adhere to the standards and the regulation and they must know and implement the regulation. Another big thing is traceability. We do a secure traceability check to see that all the animals on the farm are organic and that they've gone through the correct conversion period. What are the regulations with regards to that? The regulation with regards to that is the food of the livestock, the requirement that they must be outside for certain periods of the day and the year, the medicine requirement that they can only do it as when needed and not on a precautionary basis, only when prescribed by a vet. And then the other thing is the origin of your animals. For example, a bull does not have to be organic. You can bring a conventional bull or a ram onto your field to cover your animals and then your ewes and cows, and then you can send the bull away. It does not have to be raised and kept as organic. Um, 
artificial insemination is allowed. And if you have a herd that you want to convert to organic, it must be farmed and kept according to organic regulation for at least six months. We call that a conversion period, and after six months, they will be organic. Now, the medication that has been given to the farm animals, what type of medication would it be in particular? We prefer that the medicines are natural medicines and not chemical medicines, synthetic medicines, but in cases where an animal requires to get an antibiotic and the veterinary prescribes that, they are allowed to get the medication. The animals who receive the medication must be kept aside and if the withdrawal period in conventional is six weeks, the double that amount applies for the withdrawal period in, in organic. It is a myth that organic animals are not allowed to get antibiotics because the welfare of the animal is still the foremost aspect that we care for in organics. Just that the withdrawal period is double what it is for conventional animals. Doctor, do we have legislation in South Africa about the standard to which producers should voluntarily comply if they want to market their produce or livestock being organic? Unfortunately, the organic regulation is not yet promulgated in South Africa. So does it mean that the meat that we are consuming currently is not being regulated in as far as whether it's organic or non-organic? Yes, it is not regulated. If any person basically can label their meat as organic in South Africa, but in our case, the case of the Easterosens, they are allowed to put on the product certified organic. So that means it has been checked and accredited by a third-party organization, such as EcoCert Southern Africa, and we vouch that they adhere to international regulation. They could also export now their products as organic. Doctor, now how do I confirm if I go to a butchery to find out that the meat that I'm buying for consumption is organic? You have to look on the label, read the label of the product to say it must be certified organic and not just organic. And you must look for the logo of one of the certification bodies or the certification body code. And for example, a certification body code in South Africa will start with ZA, which is the ISO abbreviation for South Africa, hyphen, bio, B-I-O, the abbreviation for organic, and then another hyphen and a number, a three-digit number. Now, the number for EcoCert is 154. So whenever you see on any label, ZA bio 154, you will know that that's certified by EcoCert. Other certification bodies like Sierras, Lacon, ECS, they have Dr. Mariana Smith is with Econet South Africa talking to Ecoset Southern Africa talking to Wandile Kalipa. 
The former chairperson of the African Union Commission, Dr. Nkosazana Lamini Zuma, says the international community must put more pressure on the United Nations to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict in the Middle East. Lamini Zuma delivered a Palestine Solidarity Lecture in Rustenburg in South Africa as part of the annual hashtag Israeli Apartheid Week campaign. Flanked by the Deputy Minister of Basic Education, Enva Serti, and the Minister of International Relations, Maiden Mashabane, Dr. Lamini Zuma emphasized the ruling party's commitment to the end of the illegal occupation of Palestinian territories. Itumeleng Khajane reports. Unrelenting in their call for what they term Israeli apartheid, there's still a bitter taste in the mouths of those against Israel oppression of Palestine. Party loyalists and top brass alike say they will stop at nothing to ensure an end to discrimination globally. The pressure is on the United Nations to act on its own findings on the imposition of apartheid on Palestinians. Dr. Tamini Zuma explains. We must put pressure first to the United Nations to take the necessary step to resolve the Arab-Israeli conflict in all its aspects. The UN must continue all efforts to achieve a just, comprehensive and lasting peace based on the principle of a two-state solution according to the 1967 borders. Diverse voices have united in this call for the emancipation of Palestine going beyond religious and racial differences. South African International Relations Minister Maite Mashabani. No other voiceless people or a nation around the world should ever find themselves occupied by the another because they are weaker and the others are stronger. The national spokesperson for the lobby group Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions, Kwarakekana, says their struggle is not against the Jews. It's not a Jewish struggle, it's not a religious struggle. Fundamentally, it's a human rights issue. It's a struggle for self-determination at the heart of it. The involvement of African countries is welcomed by Palestinians as the situation is reportedly worsening. Palestinian ambassador to South Africa, Hashem Dajan. The Palestinians are suffering from the continuation of the policies of building settlements and also from the policies of uh, dividing uh, the West Bank with the ISS separation wall, which we call it the apartheid wall. Yes, in Palestine, the situation is very difficult. And the solidarity which is coming from South Africa and, South, uh, and African countries is very important for Palestine and Palestinians to, to achieve peace and stability uh, in our region. Over 250 cities, communities and campuses across the globe are actively using boycotts and sanctions to raise awareness about Israel's oppressive system. I'm Itumelian Kajani, Rustenburg, Northwest. News headlines with Thank you, Spumelele. Making headlines, the South African government has been urged to stop blaming foreign nationals for its failures to address the high rate of unemployment in the country. Two bodies have been found at the Republic of Congo, and there is high probability they are the remains of United Nations investigators who went missing earlier this month. And finally, former rebels in Mali have reversed a decision to boycott a national reconciliation conference after receiving assurances from the government. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo.
Thank you very much, Olane. 1731 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Spumela Lezondi with you until 1800 hours Central African Time. A new Oxfam report says the drought that hit South Africa has created a national disaster that places severe burdens on low-income rural and urban households who are reliant on buying food while losing opportunities to secure income through employment and farming. South Africa has been experiencing its more severe droughts in over 35 years. More than half of the population have experienced water shortages, while rising food prices and income insecurity are making hunger a daily reality for a growing number of families. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by Ronald Wesso. He is a research and a policy leader at Oxfam in Southern Africa. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Ronald. Thank you very much. Uh, Ronald, can you just briefly tell us about your stance of sentiments that the poor governance of water resources in South Africa is the key aspect that has created the current water security crisis? Yes, uh, our researchers found they chose to title the report A Harvest of Dysfunction. And what they mean by that is something very simple. Our common sense understanding of drought is that it is a shortage or a restricted rainfall uh, compared to the average rainfall. But what they found is that uh, the suffering and social problems that's associated with the drought doesn't flow directly from the shortage of rainfall. Between the shortage of rainfall and the suffering and problems that we see, uh, there stands the dysfunctions in our water management system, in our governance system, and in our economic system. And maybe if you can also tell us about um, how your research was done and what it focuses on. Well, we started uh, with a media review. And what was important about this is that we realized very early in the research that even government, when they did pronounce on the drought, they depended on the media as sources. So um, our researchers uh, reviewed how did the media report the, the, the drought, how did they understand the drought, and what was the consequences of that. One of the, the key consequences we uh, identified was that the voices of poor people, and especially black women, were excluded from the discourse around the drought. Their problems were excluded from the definition of drought, and therefore the interventions was uh, also not aimed at that uh, particular target group. So then, because there was this gap in the kind of conversation about drought, our uh, on-the-ground or empirical research then focused on getting the voices of poor communities, and especially black women in poor communities. So we did uh, focus group interviews, we did uh, interviews, uh, and yes, we visited uh, uh, drought-affected communities uh, to observe directly also the effects of the drought. Mm. Um, And these uh, poor communities that you're talking about, that you did the research on, where in the country were they? And were they in various parts of the country? And did you find that your findings were the same in those different parts of the country? Well, um, we had a a, a, a very restricted time. So we went to uh, Limpopo province, uh, KwaZulu-Natal, and the Free State. 
uh, because those were among the provinces that was identified uh, in the discourses about the drought as the most severely hit. Mm, those are three different parts of the country, one being in the north, one in the east, and one in central South Africa. Um, were your findings in those three different parts of the country exactly the same? Well, uh, we also try to get a balance of different kinds of communities, if I can put it like that. So in the free state, we focused on farm workers. In the KwaZulu-Natal, we focused on uh, smallholder farmers or subsistence farmers on communal land, and in Limpopo we focus on communities that are established on land that they access through the government's land reform program. And more or less the findings were the same. And those findings were that uh, people experienced drought as a kind of a shock to the system that depleted their reserves, um, and that the main effect because even on the land reform farms and in the communal areas, people's main source of food are the food that they buy in the supermarkets. And the main effect of the drought was actually experienced through the enormous rise in the price of food, and especially of white maize, which, was, which is the staple food in these communities. And this um, was... was restricting people's access, they had to cut portions, and it had a severe effect on women who uh, in, in, in all of those communities are mainly responsible for the cooking and the preparation of food and shopping, and what one of the key strategies is to cut their own portions of meals. So they prioritize uh, the other members of the household, and they eat less food or less nutritious food, and this has led to severe uh, health problems, uh, hunger, and uh, yes, like one of the women said, women pay the price for the drought with their bodies. This is certainly the finding that cuts across all communities that we visited. Mm. Um, and was there enough assistance for these women? Uh, no. Um, l- like I said, uh, one of our key recommendations is to... Uh, is that government should look at a disaster grant. And this follows flows from our main finding, which is that the main impact of the drought in poor communities are felt through rising food prices. Now, there is a, um, so, a relief of social disaster grant on the books. The legislation is there, the policy is there, it's ready to be used, but it's not really used, and it's not really part of the kind of package of interventions that government has rolled out. Um, so, no, uh, the men in on communal land are mainly cons- uh, uh, busy with cattle farming, and they did get some assistance, but even there, the assistance wasn't enough to actually avoid the cattle dying. The cattle, the, 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 the farmers, the smallholder cattle farmers, that got government assistance in the form of water and feed, they had the same levels of losses, and that is up to 80% of stock uh, in already poor communities. So there are some help available, but what we found, it's not very well directed, and it misses out the biggest group of people that really need assistance, with the people who are struggling to pay for food in the supermarkets.
All right. Now you've done your research and you mentioned that you um, make certain recommendations uh, that you feel the government must look into. Do you deliver the report to government? Do you deliver it to other bodies or do you just make it public? Well, um, the the Department of uh, Water Sanitation and the Department of Agriculture attended our launch and there was a formal handover where we, together with representatives from the communities where we conducted the research, handed the report over. Uh, The government was very interested in our report. So now, look, Oxfam is not primarily a research organization. We are an organization that uh, focuses on influencing uh, government policies and systems and structures in order to address what we call the injustice of poverty. So this kind of drought response will now become part of our program work as we work with poor communities around the country. As Oxfam, do you make similar reports in other parts of the African continent? Um, We've worked very closely on this with our uh, regional colleagues uh, because El Nino and the drought that accompanied the El Nino phenomenon is not a national phenomenon. It's global, and the drought that we experienced uh, ran uh, uh, ran from Cape Town to at least Addis Ababa. So we tried as far as possible because Oxfam has about five country programs also in the region. Yes. Uh, And today at the launch of the report, One of our regional colleagues was there also to give an overview of the problem in the region and of the work that Oxfam has been doing uh, to try and assist people. Ronald Wesso, Research and Policy Leader at Oxfam Southern Africa, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Now, March is TB Awareness Month, and it is dedicated to educating everyone around the world about the scourge of TB. The annual campaign coincides with the commemoration of World TB Day, which was marked last week, Friday. South Africa will commemorate the day this coming Friday at its main national event in Bloemfontein in the Free State Province. Under the theme, Unite to End TB and HIV, South African leaders making taking action. To speak to us about this, we're joined on the line by Evelyn Mch- Strengthening Advisor for the United States Agency for International Development, TB South Africa. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Evelyn. Hello, uh, Luanda. <laughs> it's Pumelele, Evelyn. Uh, thank oh, you very Pumelele. much. And oh, Pumelele and, you and the viewers. <laughs> thank you and welcome. Now, if you can just tell us um, a bit more about what's going to be happening on Friday. Okay, on Friday we commemorating World TB Day. Every year on March 24, the whole world uh, commemorates World TB Day, which is the day when the TB gem was discovered by Robert Koch. We are not celebrating as such, but just to remind the people that TB is still there, TB is an issue for us to to take care of. How big of an issue is it? Pardon? How big of an issue is it? Sorry to cut you off there. How big of an issue is TB? TB, especially in our country, is still a big issue because we are amongst the six countries. The, we are number six in the world amongst the countries with the highest death of TB worldwide. 
every year we report among our almost 400,000 TB cases, mm-hmm. which is quite a huge number. Mm-hmm. So you can see that TB is really a problem because we discovered with TB in spite of everybody, almost everybody knowing the signs and terms of TB, knowing how you get TB. But we still, we still report almost 400 cases mm-hmm. per annum because of TB. Now, the theme for South Africa is Unite to end TB and HIV. Um, why that link between HIV and TB? There's a, there's a link between TB and HIV because they are both uh, diseases that actually attack the immune system. HIV infection, if one has HIV infection, the immune system becomes uh, compromised tremendously. And living in a country where TB is everywhere, almost all of us, at some stage, you inhale the TB germs. But if your immune system is good, then they stay in your body. But as soon as your immune system comes down, then the TB germs start to grow. That's when you start to show the signs and symptoms of TB. And that's when then you start getting a TB disease. Mm. And there's also an issue of continued research. Is there enough funding? Is it important to continue researching TB and new strains of TB that we probably um, start seeing? It, it is important to keep on uh, doing the research for TB because, you know, over time they become cleverer in a simple language and then they actually dodge over medication if you want to put it plain language. So it, it is important that you continuously do research to identify the new strain and also be able to identify the new ways of uh, treating TB. Like for example, now we've in, over the past years we're using the the, the sputum through the microscopy in the laboratory to identify uh, the TB germ, and that is to take quite enough and a long time, especially in far away areas. You find that you wait for two to three days for your results. Rural areas uh, can even become worse. But now with the new technology, we can detect TB in a day. And also what is also uh, critical is that even the resistant TB, you can identify it at the same time. Whereas in the past, one is to wait about six weeks before knowing that it got MDR. But now we can know in the space of a week that you have normal TB or you have resistant TB. So research is very important in that way. All right. Thank you very much for joining us, Evelyn Klopp. Okay. Evelyn Klopp there is the strengthening advisor for the United States Agency for International Development, TB South Africa Project. It's time for your economic news with Amanda Machaka. Thank you, Spumilele. Good evening. South Africa's Finance Minister Pravin Gordon says he has not been fired, contrary to rumors that have been circulating since he landed in the country this morning. Gordon rushed to ANC headquarters at Lutuli House after he was called back from an investor promotion tour in the United Kingdom by the presidency. The minister then attended court proceedings in Pretoria, where he's seeking an order to stop the Gupta-owned Oak Bay group of companies from putting him under pressure about their closed bank accounts. Gordon spoke briefly with media outside the court. I was there to have a discussion, and we had a discussion, and we left. 
But I need to go now. I have an appointment. No, you shouldn't. Rumors are supposed to be rumors, aren't they? I didn't recall myself. No, no. I think ask the presidency. The South African Revenue Service has disputed the reported $3 billion shortfall in its revenue collection for the 2016-2017 financial year. SARS was briefing Parliament's Standing Committee on Finance on its quarterly performance. SARS Group Executive Randall Carollison admits revenue collection is influenced by the economic climate but rejects the reported figure. So to use a term to say that SARS had fallen short by 30 billion this year is actually totally incorrect. If you want to make a pronouncement on that, you have to view that in context of the economic outlook that is published at the same time. And that caused very bad light on SARS, this 30 billion story. It is Nigeria's economy shrank by 1.5% in 2016, its first annual contraction in 25 years. President Muhammadu Buhari recently spent six weeks seeking medical treatment in London as the country continues to be rolled by Boko Haram jihadists in the northeast and by unrelated militants' attacks on oil facilities in the Niger Delta. Last month, Nigeria issued a 15-year $1 billion US dollar euro bond, a bond in a currency other than that of the country issuing it that was eight times oversubscribed. A second issuance is expected this month. Kenya's inflation rate will remain above the government's target range in the next two months and then ease back towards it. Year-on-year inflation surged to 9% last month after a drought drove up food prices. The target range is 25 to 7.5%. Policymakers held the benchmark lending rate at 10% for the third time in a row on Monday, saying there was no demand-driven inflation risk. The bank's Monetary Policy Committee said it was concerned by the impact of a cap on commercial rates imposed by the government last September. The cap worsened already sluggish private sector credit growth. And Mauritius will auction a three-year treasury bond and a 15-year linked bond at two separate auctions next week. The Bank of Mauritius said in a statement it would receive bids on April 6 and auction the three-year bond worth $51.3 million on the same day. It will carry a coupon rate of 2.9% and will mature in 2020. The bank said it would also auction the inflation index treasury bond worth 1.3 billion rupees on April 5. The bond will bear interest annually at the weighted accepted bid margin, plus the 12-month average inflation rate at the end of February every year. That's the latest business news. Thank you very much, Amanda. It's time for Sports News. Here's Mosibu de Makura.
Good evening, sports fans. I am Musibu Dimakura with your latest sports news at the Sawam. Starting off with football news, Pakamani Mathambi, Luther Singh, as well as Diamond Topola will make their Bafana Bafana debut when they start against Angola in a friendly match at Buffalo City Stadium in East London tonight. The trio is part of nine changes made by Bafana Bafana interim coach Owen Dagama from a 3-1 victory over Guinea-Bissau in Durban on Saturday. Now defenders Eric Matoho as well as Dabohol Langaman are the only survivors from the last match. Darren Keat gets the nod in goals. His last game for Bafana Bafana was a 3-1 loss to Algeria back in January 2015 in the Africa Cup of Nations tournament held in Equatorial Guinea. Langaman will continue at left back while Topola will occupy the right back position. Matoho will partner with Rivaldo Kotsia in central defence. Andile Jali as well as Diani Mabunda will pull the strings from the middle of the park where they will be assisted by under-20 internationals Msambi as well as Singh. Najali will captain the side the second time he has done so. He last wore the armband back in January 2015 in Libreville, Gabon, when Bafana defeated Mali 3-0 in a pre-tournament friendly for the 2015 Africa Cup of Nations tournament. Kickoff is set for 7 p.m. Central African time. Meanwhile, Angolan head coach Beto Banchi admits he's facing challenges to build his team, but the friendly against Bafana Bafana tonight offers a starting point. Angola entered the contest in East London with a woeful record as they have lost their previous eight matches, most recently going down to Mozambique in a friendly match this past Saturday. Now, Banchi concedes his charges face challenges on multiple fronts as they seek their first win since beating Ethiopia in a Chan qualifier in January 2016. Angola have fared poorly against Bafana Bafana in 12 meetings, suffering 8 losses and 3 draws alongside a sole victory and a Chan qualifier back in 2015. On to athletics news, the Spa Grand Prix, one of South Africa's most prestigious women athletic events, finally kicks um, finally gets underway on Sunday. 21,000 runners will participate in the first leg race in Cape Town. South Africa's top female runner, Mapaseka Makanya, will be amongst a strong field of runners. And although she admits that she's a bit nervous, she's confident it will be a great season for her. Um, I'm looking forward to the Star Ladies race in Cape Town because last year I missed it due to injuries and whatsoever. But now I'm already never confident that this will be a great season for me and we'll see how Sunday goes or oh, the rest of the season you know it's, it's exciting the new changes and everything so it's, it's very nerve-wracking to be especially being a patron because you also need to lead by example and finally Ancilla Smith the CEO of uh, the Special Olympics South Africa has congratulated Team South Africa after winning 11 medals at the just-concluded Winter Games in Austria. Most medals, which were gold and silver, were um, came from hockey as well as skating. There is no team in the country that has achieved such a record of so many medals. And Silla Smith says it is a remarkable feat. All I can say, it was an absolutely remarkable achievement. If we look at the fact that you know, we, we talk about 11 medals because um, the one gold was our uh, Special Olympics South Africa floor hockey team that won the gold medal. So, in fact, they all returned with a gold medal. So that was 13 of them in that team. 
Um, so the actual medal count, if you look at it, if you look at those individuals all coming back with a gold, even though we talk about gold in one sporting code, we in fact have 90, 95% of our athletes returning with medals from that Games, which I think is absolutely remarkable. The Zaya Sports News at the Sour Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Africa Digest. Let's recap our top stories. Tributes continue to pour in following the passing of South Africa's anti-apartheid giant. March is a TB Awareness Month dedicated to eradicating everyone around the world about the scourge of TB. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. From myself, Spumela Lezondi, producer Luana Mahomet, technical producer Catherine Malika and the rest of the team. Thank you for listening. Send us emails, info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. On SMS, it's plus 27-796-957-930. You can also tweet us, channel Africa One. We leave you with Nizalongoba Nibai Tandiswa Mazwai. Don't even cry